Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Kate Sieber. Kate, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm very good, and I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since actually not just reading your article, but reading just the opening couple paragraphs of your article. And if it's okay with you, I'm going to read a couple paragraphs of your bio and then talk about the article. Sounds great. Or actually, uh, here, your, your, article, your, your bio begins on that you're a freelance journalist and correspondent for Outside Magazine based in Durango, Colorado, and you cover a wide range of topics, science, the environment, social issues, mental health, and outdoors for magazines, newspapers, and websites. And the article that I read of yours is, uh, oh, I thought I had on, okay. Uh, Should I stop flying? It's a difficult decision to make. And I came about it from some um, organizations that are the newsletter for uh, Flight Free USA, which is mentioned in the article. And reading this article was many things for me. Part of it was, it was, it ex- I haven't flown since 2016. I didn't intend to go for not flying for longer than that. But the longer I went without flying, the more I realized I was never going to fly again for and not because I'm trying to save the world, although I certainly would like to improve things, but it just made my life better without flying. And this article was different than any article that I'd read about flying or not flying or, or trying to make flying sustainable. And it said a lot of things that I thought but had never said before and had to contact you to find out more about you and to hopefully explore some of the things that are in this article. And hopefully some listeners will click on the link in the in the notes to the article and read it themselves and consider things. Uh, maybe before going into the article, uh, I should probably ask you to to share more about yourself than just the the sentence or two in the bio, how you came to writing and why the topics that you choose. Yeah, I'm so so glad that the article resonated with you. That's really good to hear and. Uh, yeah, I've been writing for almost 20 years now and started off in the outdoor and travel space, actually, and um, have over the years covered more and more in mental health spaces, in environmental spaces, looking at social issues. And so my interests have changed over the years. And um, yeah, and now I find myself writing more and more essays, really trying to disentangle uh, our, our relationship to our actions, to the ways in which we are in the world and to ourselves and to the land and the planet. Would you mind if I read the, maybe I should ask you to read the, the, the first couple paragraphs? Because um, they really drew me sure. in. Let's see if I have it. Actually, I might. I might have it up. Um, I didn't think of. I should have prepped you on that. Just the first two paragraphs. Yeah, because it. To, I mean, I, I've re- I read it in my voice, but now you're here. It, your voice would be better. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, four years ago, during a Zoom work meeting, a colleague who lives in London told me she decided to quit flying on airplanes. She simply couldn't stomach the cost to the climate. Due to her decision, she said calmly, she would probably never visit the U.S. again. My heart skipped a beat. Her choice seemed so extreme. She shared it with me casually in the context of conversation without a trace of judgment or moralizing. Still, I felt shocked and inexplicably a little defensive, but also intrigued. At the time, I traveled by air as often as 10 times a year for my work as a journalist and to see family members strewn about the country. I couldn't imagine my life without flying. That captured so much of my experience of my own personal experience of the concept of not flying, as well as what happens when I talk to people. I mean, right off the bat, when you talk about you felt a bit defensive, but even though she wasn't without a trace of judgment or moralizing, still you felt defensive. And it's... (laughs) Isn't that curious how these like psychologies work? You know, it's, it's, it's actually quite fascinating. And I've seen that in other people too, um, with other topics, even like vegetarianism or something. I've been vegetarian for 20 years. And sometimes you tell people that, and then they tell you all the reasons why they're not. And um, it's just fascinating the way that we want to resonate with each other, you know? Yeah. And I wanted to, that's one of the things I, I was looking forward to is an art, was a chance to talk to someone about this 
and it felt like I could probably I could probably have a conversation with you the way now I can talk about vegetarianism or being vegetarian or being vegan without it being a big deal. At least here in Manhattan, it's, it's pretty common, and you know it's not like a it's been a long time since I've gone to a restaurant where there wasn't some option for me. Yeah. Whereas if I talk about not flying, I get what I think the people feel like is their reasons they came up with before their decision to fly. But I'm, they sound completely like a craving that they then rationalize and justify. And it just ends up being like, um, not a punch in the face, but just like really an unpleasant conversation in which I'm accused of all sorts of things that I don't feel like I ever said. Yeah. And I get called privileged for, I mean, like people can't afford to not fly. I'm like, it's baffling to me that how much more, I mean, how much money I saved by not flying and things like that. And so your article covers a lot of different things. Oh, also, yeah. One of the things that was really surprising is like, I, like you're kind of hinting at there's going to be a movement because you're talking about all these organizations. And then it says, this year, Flight Free USA, for example, is on track to see the largest number of pledges to stop or minimizing flying at in the entire nation of 330 million Americans. 436. I know, I know, right? <laughs> I mean, it's meant to be a little bit of a shock, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such a small number. There are more than that. But that's the number that has signed up through that. But I don't know how many more than that there actually are. Um, yeah, I know. It's amazing. Yeah, I guess there's also not that many people in the world have ever flown or for that matter, have flown across an ocean. I mean, it's like a single digit percentage, I think. But I think we feel when we're flying, most of the time we're not flying. But sometimes you go to an airport and we go to an airport, everyone there is you know about to get on or just got off a flight. So it feels like, well, everyone flies sometimes, but most of the time doesn't. And it feels like, I think American culture, most people feel like everybody flies. Yeah. Or at, at least, least in American cities. Their class, I think, right? Um, but yeah, and in the culture in which I find myself, everyone flies and most people don't think about it and it feels taboo. It feels taboo to talk about it and as if it's like, okay, well, we've just resigned ourselves to this is the way it is. Like, this is just the way it is. And I like, uh, and I suspect that you like to disentangle those assumptions and entitlements. Um, so that was my attempt uh, through this story. Yeah, entitlement seems really, that definitely is the word would describe my um, relationship with it. I just felt, of course, like there's a party in Miami. Why would I not go? And I feel like that's that's our culture today is if you can afford it and you have time, that's all the consideration necessary. There's no consideration of, I mean, to me, the more the longer I go without flying, the more I feel connected to, this is really ironic. I feel more connected to the people who whose land, who would be displaced from their land, who'd have to breathe the fumes, whose land will be submerged. And... I feel more connected to them without flying to go see them than when I did go to fly see them to see them. And if I flew to go see them, now that looks to me like going to the zoo. Like it's not real. Like I guess I read this travel account recently where someone flew, and it was from something like fifty years ago, and someone flew to some place. I think it was Thailand, and they took an eighteen-hour train ride, and then took a long thing after that. And it used to be that travel had some element of, I mean, now I would say travel as opposed to just getting into this thing and getting out. And like, I feel like different cultures are becoming increasingly homogenized so that like the adventure and the discovery seems to be gone. We, it's not really, um, whatever Marco Polo did, it's not that. <laughs> yeah. True exploration. You talked about a few people in it that you've spoken to and about their transitions or decisions to not flying. And just before we recorded, you mentioned how they talked about it. And I wonder if you could share that again. And also another thing is that you talked also about their transitions. The, like the, not quite road to, to Damascus moments, but like there seemed to be something that they went through, a transformation or a, a personal struggle. 
don't know if you could talk about how they talk about it and then also how they transitioned. If that's the right word. Yeah, what struck me interviewing some of these people who have made this choice to not fly uh, was that many of them described like a visceral experience that was like a light bulb, like, oh my gosh, I can't do this anymore. And it was, it was abrupt, you know, it was um, sitting in an airport and reading a climate report and getting on a plane as if it were nothing and just having an absolute panic attack. Like, what am I doing? Um, Said climate scientist who described to me flying over the Pacific ocean. She went to a lot of conferences and um, did a lot of international flying and a lot of international study and a reef that she had studied for 18 years had recently died because of a massive coral uh, bleaching event. And she remembers flying over the ocean being like, this is insane. <laughs> what, what am I doing? And, and just like put it like almost a bodily experience of this disconnect between reality and their choices and what they felt deep in their body and in their minds and in their hearts uh, was right, was the right decision. And so it's just really fascinating to me that this was often like literally a physical experience and came with emotions like disgust or panic or, um, you know, like also like just profound sadness and letting themselves feel that. And uh, and then oftentimes, at least the folks that I talked to, it seemed like there was there was this kind of transformation of, okay, this is impossible and it's going to be awful and I'm going to try it one step at a time. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it was really interesting to hear the way in which everyone, while there were certainly inconveniences and trade-offs, um, no doubt, um, described feeling really happy with that decision and that it actually improved their lives um, in ways that they didn't necessarily expect and in ways that you echo, that you've echoed in your podcast and your TED Talks um, around feeling more connected, around feeling healthier, uh, around feeling more in alignment with one's values in integrity, which is something that can't really be put on a resume necessarily, but that you can feel and that you live with in every moment, really. Um, so it was really inspiring, actually, because it is hard when you're swimming in the waters of a whole lot of privilege and an unquestioned belief and in the inviolable right to fly to actually make a different choice. You know, it's it's hard to do that. And so I think we do need to take heart in some of these stories that um, lead the way, you know. Yeah, as you're saying that there, I think one of the things about your article that resonated, resonated, yes, but also it made me feel comfortable and understood that other people had gone through this. You, you, you reminded me of my last two flights that were uh, into Paris, sorry, into London, then I took the train to Paris and then back home through Paris. And I, I was, by this point, I had read about how much more flying polluted than I thought, or how much flying polluted, which was much more than I thought. So in London, I was, I was going to London because I had lots of stuff to do there. So I was really busy and I didn't have time to think much about it. But when I went to Paris, it was to sightsee. I couldn't sleep at night. I was just tossing and turning in bed and I wasn't jet lag. I, I just could not stop thinking about not it's not couldn't stop thinking about it. It was just it was clear to me what the right choice was and what the wrong choice was, and I was making the wrong choice, and I couldn't do that anymore. And I'm not saying right, absolute right or wrong. I'm saying right for me, and I just couldn't do it. And I didn't know what was. I was like, I, I yeah, I did feel like I was stepping off a cliff into the abyss of of like unknown consequences. Yeah. Although at the time I was just thinking if it was going to be for one year. And here you are. <laughs> How many years has it been now? That was March 2016. Yeah. So I'm in year seven, I guess. No, I guess I'm in year eight. I think it's been seven, been seven years. And yeah, it's uh, one of the things in your article is it. Oh, wait. I, I wanted to ask also about um, so how people described it to you. How, how did people describe it to me? Sorry. 
Yeah, because um, the issue of judgment, non-judgment, um, expressing themselves and their experience, it, it, I think a lot of people expect if people talk about stuff that that they feel there's a moral issue about, then they're going to feel preached to. But I, I felt like that didn't happen with you when people share these things with you. No, and maybe I was lucky with the people who I talked to. I don't know. But um, yeah, I didn't feel like any of them were moralizing. They were sharing their experience and they certainly had their views. But I think that there was often an understanding that there's a lot of complexity at work in some of these decisions and and also a real acceptance of that judgment is pretty ineffective and also unnecessary, right? It's like you can have discernment and a clear view without the aversion. And I think that's really important um, in humanizing each other and our decisions. But it was also really cool to feel like there was an inherent beautiful challenge in their words too, you know, and there is an encouragement uh, to engage with this topic in a way that would be really fruitful, if that makes sense. So, um, so I guess there's sort of a paradox there where it's like, um, where it's like, you can be, you can be totally, fully, deeply committed to your decision and the rightness of your decision, but inspire others not through persuasion, but example, you know? What did you expect when you, when you started writing the article? What prompted you to write the article? I mean, there was the hearing about your friend four years ago. Was it was this article four years in the making? Were you, did you expect to – did you know what the article was going to be like before you started? Uh, not necessarily, actually. You know what's funny <laughs> is that I actually, through the writing of this article, committed to um, next year because I already had a few trips in the works this year to try to fly no more than once, hopefully even less than once, but no more than once. And that's um, may not be a lot in comparison to what you're doing, but it's a step for me. And I wasn't anticipating articulating that when I wrote the article and it felt a little edgy to put that in print, but I did. Um, so I was inspired largely by my friend Liz, actually. And she came to visit me on the train last summer. And I was just kind of amazed <laughs> that she was really committed uh, to this. And it really got me thinking along with my experience with my colleague that I described earlier. And I just started to get curious about it. And luckily I have a really good relationship with outside magazine, which I've been writing for, for a long time. And my editors gave me a kind of blank slate to go explore um, and interview people and just reflect a lot. And so stories like this, um, I think re require quite a bit of introspection or at least that's the way that I like to write them. I'm glad you mentioned your editors because I was really curious about that because Outside Magazine promotes a lot of travel, a lot of flying. Yeah, they do. <laughs> and so this is really – but I think this is more to the core values of Outside. But I don't know. What was the relationship like with your editors? Were they like, hey, you're messing up our, our what this magazine is about? We're gonna, you're going to mess with the minds of the – hearts and minds of our readers? Or were they like, this is where we got to go? <laughs> no, um, no, they were really great. They were really great. And I think that they like these um, paradigm questioning stories. They publish quite a lot of them. And some of them are pretty controversial. Um, you know, it's interesting, actually, with this story. I got so little feedback uh, from readers, almost an unusually small amount of feedback. And usually you hear from some readers. And I actually take that to mean that people were challenged by this story. You know, that can sometimes happen, but I'm, I'm kind of curious about that. So it's nice to hear from people like you who actually read the story <laughs> and, um, and enjoyed it or resonated with it in some way. But um, yeah, I think I agree with you that I think that ultimately it's almost more adventurous to travel and not fly, right? It's not going in the groove that so many have traveled before us. 
it's pretty easy to get on a plane and to find yourself dislocated on the other end of the world, you know, relatively speaking. Um, but it's a lot harder to come up with your own path, right? With your own path that not everybody else is doing. In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I mean, I guess one of the defining, one of, one of the great experiences of my life was the summer between high school and college. I was 16 years old and a friend of mine and I rode our bikes from Philadelphia to Maine and back about 1500 miles with, you know, everything, the tents and stuff on the, on the bikes and and everyone comments how 16-year-olds trying to do that today, their parents would probably be arrested. I'm not sure. But I went bike camping for the first time since the 80s or maybe early 90s. And it was amazing. I mean, look, I've been to uh, more than two dozen countries. And I've traveled to North Korea a couple of times and all these other places that are pretty amazing things. And I don't know what to say to people who say, oh, well, you've gotten it out of your system. Other people still need to do that. I don't I don't know. I mean, people have traveled without flying for a long time before flight. But these bike trips have been the equal of any trip that I flew to, except I could just get on the bike and do it. There was no fly, there was no saving up money. There was no, I could just do it. And I mean, just learning things about myself and about the, the world around me and about other people and, and really life changing experiences. And I just got on the bike and rode. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there can be incredible adventures that don't require flying for sure. I think that there also can be like amazing overland journeys, right? Like people biking to Tierra del Fuego or that kind of thing. Um, they do require time. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's great to think outside of the box as to what is actually an adventure and what is actually um, a stretch, you know? Yeah. I also took sailing lessons. Uh, once I realized that this was serious and I might never see the Eiffel Tower again, then, you know, I looked into like cruise ships or getting a, a cabin on a, on a container ship or um, something like that. But none of them, none of them works uh, in terms of my values, but sailing would. So I took lessons and I haven't yet sailed across. And by the way, I took those lessons before Greta. And for some reason, no one's offering me to sail me across. But what? why not? <laughs> I have taken the, the classes in like I go to sail in the New York Harbor and I've been on Long Island Sound. And one summer after I learned sailing, there's this deal where if I, for like a subscription for the summer, as long as there's a skipper going out, I wasn't yet. I couldn't go out on a sailboat on my own. But if there's a skipper going out and there's an empty space, you could go on that boat and so for much less than the cost of, of trips, I could go out on, I could go out as many times as I wanted. And in order to get my money's worth, I'd go out as often as I could. So that often meant going out when I was really busy and had a lot to do. Like I, on Monday morning, I'd go and sign up for something on, you know, during the week and maybe there'd be a chance on Thursday. And maybe by Thursday, I would get really busy. And, but I was like, I don't want to give up my spot. So I'd go. And then once I got on the boat, like just putting the foot on the boat, Suddenly, everything changes to the pace of the wind and the and the currents, and everything goes away. And I could be a few miles from home, and yet another world. And I had no idea because I grew up thinking I'd associated sailing with like the Kennedys, mm. and I thought it was like this rich person thing. But sailing has been done forever. It's ever. I mean, everywhere there's everywhere people can sail, people sail. So that was a big discovery for me as well. That's beautiful. It sounds really fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's like, I wasn't, I never, I haven't yet reached a stage where it's second nature. So I'm still having to work at it and it takes a lot of concentration. I remember at one point in the sailing lesson, in one of our lessons, as it happens in New York City Harbor, there's like tons of boat traffic. There's all these boats going around. And my instructor was like, someone's at the till and like, like one one of the student is is like operating the the till and steering. Another student is operating one of the sails or the the lines for the sail, and another is another. And she's given us some time to like figure it out to try to steer out of the path of these two boats that are coming at us. And we're not getting it because it's our first times. And she calmly and we're kind of I'm kind of getting nervous because these boats are like getting pretty close to us. And she just steps in, and it was like, um. 
I felt like a virtuoso piano player just singing through the piano. Like she just made the boat dance. Like it turned around faster than I could imagine it. And next thing you know, we're like going quickly the other way. And she just did it. Like I didn't even notice what she did. She just poof. So I knew that there was a lot. Like I'm not that. I'm nowhere close to that. That's inspiring. So I, I didn't get that joy that I, I, I know that it's out there waiting for me once I reach a level of mastery. Very cool. I wish you the best of luck. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I hope to get across the Atlantic and Pacific at some point. That would be rad. You know, it's actually interesting. I looked into ships and I think at least from preliminary research and I'd have to look into it more. I think that um, ships are worse than flying. Uh, in terms of crossing the ocean. So you, I think you have to stay awake to um, the details of these kinds of things, you know? And, and that's also why I, in this story that I wrote, I wasn't like, you really should quit flying yourself. It was more an invitation into a deeper inquiry, you know? And I do feel like there's actually tremendous benefit to people traveling in a really conscientious way um, and I guess my invitation or what I hope to be an invitation is to really dissect and consider how we do that, you know, um, because there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of travel businesses that support conservation and can be a real force for good. So, um, these things aren't necessarily black and white, I guess is what I want to say. Yeah. The article, I feel like it could have been a lot longer if you, I, I there's, a lot of stuff here that tells me there's depth and, and you've considered some of these things, maybe for yourself or maybe in the abstract, but did you have to disentangle some of these things yourself? Oh yeah, of course. And I think always there's so much more you could say with, with every story pretty much. Um, but attention spans are short, <laughs> so, especially <laughs> on mine. So maybe it's sometimes good to ask some questions and offer some experiences and let people take it from there. Yeah, I want to ask you what your thoughts on some of those questions. Although you also reminded me of something that I meant to ask you before when you talked about uh, – oh, now I forgot again. Um, it'll come to me. But do, what were some of the things – like what are some things that you had to disentangle for yourself or in the abstract? Oh, things – I well, I think I have to continually disentangle things. It's not like a – it's not like a – a question, a consideration, and then you're done. I feel like we continually have to let these inquiries um, simmer, you know, like just, just today, actually this morning, I was like, oh my gosh, I would love to fly to um, such and such a place for uh, some reporting actually that I would like to do. And I got kind of attached to that idea, you know, and I just had to give it a few hours and really consider like, what part of me is wanting to do that and who would it serve, you know? Um, and I realized like, okay, that probably is not necessary. I think I can do a really beautiful job on this project without flying to this place to do this reporting. Um, so I think it's going to be a continually evolving um, line of questioning and reasoning um, but for me, it, it actually kind of comes down to more of a body level and a, a gut sense. I don't love flying to begin with. And there's just a dissonance I have when I fly where I just feel like there's something, it makes me feel uh, wrenched, you know, wrenched from one place to another. And if I'm really committed to serving um, the healing of this earth and her inhabitants, which might sound earnest, but that's part of what I hope to do with my time uh, on this planet, then I think I need to listen to that, you know? I think feeling wrenched, feeling um, dislocated, feeling disconnected, those are signals. So, so it was really like paying attention on that level. When you say on that level, you talked about questioning and reasoning and gut and emotion it's really a big deal it's i guess that's partly because i think travel does seem to be something that humans really like the more i learn about our ancestral history you know going back 100,000 years or 200,000 years people traveled across continents 
and obviously not flying, just walking. So it does seem like travel is, is something that we love. Although I also feel like we, I think we tend to homogenize culture on the scale over which we travel. So that if we travel 10,000 miles in a shot, then I think culture is going to, we're going to have to travel 10,000 miles in order to get to something different, something new, as opposed to just more of the same, just in a different place. I mean, most places, if you get off an airplane, you can probably take a quick taxi ride and get Thai food or Italian food or French food or whatever you want. And I think a lot of people do. If nobody flew, I think that you wouldn't need to go 10,000 miles to get to something new. And also, I think a big thing about family, here's one of the, we haven't talked about family yet. And it's going to be, I think that's one of the major, major, family and income seem to be like the major things that, that come up. And one of my discoveries was that I, I read this, and it, but it seems to ring true that people don't want to spend all their time with family. It seems that they want to be within a certain distance that they can get there. They, they, like their parents can't drop in on them any moment, <laughs> but they can spend time with them on the holidays. If there's flying, then that's going to be flying distance away. If there's no flying, they're still going to live basically that, that situation. It'll just be train distance away or biking distance away. Like they'll still see the family just as much. They just won't, it just won't be by flying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I feel like we have to think more deeply about uh, the purposes of travel and how we, how we make those connections, you know, because like at its best, like travel is about connection and a much deeper understanding. Right. Um, and I think at its best, choosing not to fly is about a sense of connection and a deeper understanding, right? Yes. So, yeah. Um, I, I feel like uh, if we keep those motives at the forefront of our minds when we're making these choices, my hope is that uh, we will be acting in a way that supports um, our fellow beings in this world. And like what you said earlier about... Um, you know, how many people in this world actually fly. I think a statistic I found and included in this story was that only about 11% of the world's population flew. And um, I think it was 2018 was the year of that study. So yeah, some around 90% of people um, don't fly in a given year. Uh, and those who do fly can't imagine that. It's like, it's really like people are shocked by that. I was. Yeah, and that was one of the most motivating things for me was like, Oh my gosh, like globally speaking, I'm one of the like very, very, very privileged few, right? To be able to not only fly, but to potentially fly multiple times a year if I choose. And to, I just feel like it's so important to actually feel and realize and let in the fact that that is having a pretty big impact on all these people who can't make that choice. You know, it's a justice issue, actually. Huge. Yeah. And that's what drives me crazy about when, or not crazy, but makes me confused about uh, when people say that flying is somehow helping people who, to me, it seems are clearly being hurt. I mean, what displaces people from their land more than getting the resources, the, the fossil fuels, the materials to make the airplanes out of? And... People constantly say, well, it's only 2% of global warming or something like that, which is like, yeah, it's almost no one doing it though. Yeah, but I think like to play devil's advocate, it is, um, it is so complex. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like, and it's, this is my view, but I think that we can't only think our way through these issues because, um, because there are ways, like I've seen it with my own eyes, I've reported on this kind of thing that um, tourism can be, it really can be a huge force for um, environmental health, you know, like it saves whole species and um, whole landscapes, actually. So it, I think it's very complex. And it, it, I hesitate to create these big blanket statements, you know, because, um, 
Yeah, because there's just too many factors. So I prefer to keep like a really, really, really open mind. And, you know, what I may feel very deeply and what I, you know, the choices that I make, um, I, I don't know. I, I, I just want to be like, I, I just wouldn't want to impose them on others when I, I can't say that I'm like 100% certain that this is the like only solution. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think we really need to be open-minded, um, listen to ourselves and listen to um, what feels right, but also to be open-minded about solutions being very much multifactorial, you know? In the beginning of the article, you had a quote from someone I think when you were first considering it and you said to someone, you're, I think you were kind of edging toward a conversation about it. And the guy just goes, I'm not going to fly. I'm not going to stop flying. End of conversation. I mean, he didn't yeah. say end of conversation, but, and maybe a lot of this article was not to just be so, uh, to open that, to open up, to be the opposite of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. And, um, I mean, it's it's tricky, right? Because you want to challenge people, but sometimes people just shut down. I've noticed a pattern, though, like a psychological pattern in myself and also in a lot of people, actually, where when we're introduced to a new idea that's a little bit challenging, the immediate response is no, right? Like, nope, I don't like it. Nope, shut down. No. And um, I've seen this pattern over and over and over again with a lot of things, actually. But then it's like, it weasels its way in a little bit, <laughs> you know what I mean? Where I was like, well, huh, wait. <laughs> and it's so many times, I mean, with like a number of stories I've written that have been challenging, people have come back to me later and been like, you know, I, I, I like really had a hard time with your story <laughs> to begin with. Um, but then like months later, I was like, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe there's something to that. And so I feel like it's just so important to have the spirit of invitation rather than, um, yeah, like some idea that, that we think we know. Do you know what I mean? Because a, um, a lot can come from this, this spirit of um, collaborative not knowing. You know what I mean? You, you reminded me of what I forgot earlier, which was um, when you're talking about the article and not many responses from readers – did you, does a magazine also give you the statistics of how many people read it? Like, where, did it get read as many times, just less comments? Or do you know if it got read less? Well, that's a good question. Um, I don't actually know. I'm sure they could tell me, but I haven't asked them. And these stories don't have a comments section. So I don't, um, yeah, I, I don't know about that. But, um, you know, oftentimes things that are environmentally uh, related, um, so I hear anyway, might not get as many clicks, but they're still obviously really important to publish. So, you know, people might click on things that are easy to digest rather than some, uh, thought provoking <laughs> deeper read, you know, but that's okay. Yeah. Talking about raising issues of sustainability do not make a lot of money and the opposite does make a lot of money. And it's yeah. a big challenge. Something I, I didn't, something you didn't mention, but I came across some statistics somewhere that said that I forget it was travel agencies or travel companies. Most of their budget is marketing, so that and I guess it always this is quote from the guy who ran Coca Cola for a long time that the the goal was to have a Coke within arm's reach of everyone on the planet, something like that, because they know if people if they can get the craving there and just have it available. People figure it out on their own to just keep buying, buying, buying. But wow. the, the marketing is to, you know, it's to say something over there is really beautiful or really educational or something like that. But it's it's also saying where you are is terrible. Not ter I mean, maybe I've overstated that. But it, like, don't be satisfied where you are. Right. Yeah. Don't be satisfied with where you are. Don't be satisfied in general. In fact, you could say that like having an intrinsic uh sense of well-being that isn't predicated on things including flying is revolutionary right it's radical um because we're stepping out of that paradigm or dare i say traditional if we go back far enough 
I guess. Yeah. I guess it depends on, yeah. What your, what your idea of traditional is. Yeah. I had someone on the podcast who's um, at Johns Hopkins where they do the studies into psychedelics and they talk about how these experiences that people have and talking about how um, oftentimes it's one of the most meaningful experiences of their lives on par with the birth of their first child. And when I ask people what the environment means to them doing the Splodic method, then oftentimes they, the descriptions sound really similar. Obviously talking about, I mean, a psychedelic experience that maybe they're like talking to God or something like that. And an experience in nature isn't necessarily quite so undeniable in your face. But I think that it was, I feel like some of what they're doing is, is to me sounds remedial. Like it's making up for something that used to be a part of our lives. You, we used to be able to, almost anyone could probably walk out and within walking distance was solitude among the trees or along the beach or something like that. And now that's not there. I feel like we're chasing something that was always a part of our ancestral existence. Yeah, maybe in some ways, right? But I also think that we're reaching for something that has not yet ever been um, seen on this planet before, you know? Um, that's my feeling. Maybe it's both and. Through flying? No, I mean, through um, through our efforts to figure this out, you know, to figure out this crisis. Yeah, that's actually something I try to figure out. When I, the more I learn about indigenous cultures, and I'm not a scholar of this, so you know, I'm scratching the surface. But when people talk about how if we went through a process of degrowth in our culture, then they say there'd be a lot more cultural things. People would, you know, instead of seeing movies, we would have community theater and things like that. And obviously, theater's been around forever. And when I see documentaries or learn about, they, there's a lot more, um, the basics of life are cultural, whether it's cooking or singing or um, dancing or making their own clothing, which would be, I guess, fashion. I feel like uh, there's more, like I, there was a brief period where I was taking, trying to learn to sing a bit more, partly because it was something that doesn't require any power. And when I'm unplugged from the apartment, and but I, I found this tremendous joy in it, even though I was just barely getting started. And then I see this movie, this documentary about the Hadza in, in Africa and Tanzania, and their singing is just incredible. And I don't know anything about their lives, but I could tell. I know one thing that they can sing a lot better than I can. And I think that they're, and I don't think I, I think that's in every culture, um, every you know immediate return hunter hunter gather culture has some sort of poetry, some sort of um, storytelling. And then I wonder, hearing Beethoven's Ninth is really amazing. Maybe we have reached things that couldn't have been done before. Yeah. Maybe uh, flying does give something that, I don't know. I mean, I tend to feel like, I also, once I saw this, um, a painting, I think in the Louvre in Paris, so this not in the not in the last trip. It was a painting of Paris from above, seen from a hot air balloon, and I think that the that had never been seen before. At the time, it was when hot air balloons were you know the latest thing. And I think people at the time were just amazed by it in the way that we might be amazed by something that we're amazed by today. I don't know, going to Mars. And if they could be amazed by that then, why can't we be amazed by that now? Yeah. I don't know. Answer your own question, Josh. What do you think? Well, I think that, yeah, I think that the, it's not the, I mean, people can have seen views like that by going up into a mountain. I mean, there's no mountains right by Paris, but people have seen views like that. So it's not like it wasn't, I think there's some social element to it, to it also. Like, I think the status of being able to be one of the ones who went up and saw it that others hadn't is a big piece of it. I'm sure that status is a big piece of going up into space 
if not Mars, and you know, into low Earth orbit. But that status doesn't have to come at such an environmental cost. I don't think so. And I also um, wonder, yeah, like if status is something we don't need to orient to in the way that we think we do. And a lot of what I do is try to find out what I can, what, like, right now it's June. That means June berries in Manhattan and June berries are delicious. And they're only around for a couple of weeks, a month at the, t- at the, at the most. And then they go away and I got, got to wait another 11 months for them to come back. And there's plenty of things that are shipped in from California 12 months out of the year. And I've lost the taste for that. Like I, I, I'd rather have stuff come and go with the seasons. To me, there's an extra appreciation. I mean, what is flavor is one aspect of the appreciation of nature, but there's many other aspects to it too. And taste is not the only thing that, and the, 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 like the chemicals on the tongue are not the only things that affect our reward, our feeling of reward and pleasure and joy and, and beauty and discovery in say eating or appreciation of nature. So I feel like we're also missing out on a lot. I I just keep discovering more the longer I go, things like avoiding flying. Yeah, it makes you notice and appreciate the world in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it tunes you to a sort of preciousness that sometimes you don't really notice when you're um, moving so fast or when things are changing so quickly or you're you know, getting on a plane in New York and getting off a plane in LA a few hours later and the whole world has changed, you know? Um, maybe there's a certain attunement um, that you have without uh, without that flying, without having flying in your life. Yeah, how have things gone for you since the article? I mean, the article is, I guess, four years from when that first comment came to you. And then you've talked to all these people <laughs> if you, you, it was like three or four for the article plus me. So that's like a large fraction of the Americans committed to not flying. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it is really, uh, I mean, we, like I said in this story, like we already had some trips planned this year and, um, and it's tricky. So it's, like I said, it's an evolving, it's an evolving practice, but it is, it's important to me. And, I do intend to fly a whole lot less. I am not going to zero in the immediate future, but if, um, but I, I would like to, if I can, I have committed to um, one, no more than one flight next year. So we'll see how that goes. But I think for me, what is the ongoing inquiry has to do with uh, this idea of that I bring up in the story of, essentially trading a lesser happiness for a greater happiness. And that's, you know, one of these, the messages that I tried to get across is the possibility that we're missing out, you know, and oftentimes I think in American culture, at least my experience of dominant culture in this country, we're so oriented to these big experiences, you know, big emotions, big accomplishments, big things, big trips, um, and we miss some of the um, subtlety that can be a gateway into true peace and contentment, you know? And so that's one of the things that I'm really curious about is like, okay, like, what am I actually trading? Like, what am I losing and what am I gaining by making these kinds of decisions? And not just about flying, but also other other decisions that help me feel like I'm living in integrity with my values and with uh, my community, really. So that's like my ongoing inquiries is really one of renunciation, you know, like uh, how can I discern those, um, you know, big, shiny <laughs> happinesses, you know, that might seem really, really great, but really are like candy, you know, um, for what my, what really are the greater happinesses, which are like both. It's like trading candy for gold, you know? Yeah. To me, it's like, tra- I mean, to me, regular listeners know that I, I view, I mean, I, I use the word craving, I think, or, but before to me, addiction is really, we seem addicted to these things and it feels to me like trading an addiction for an inner peace. Like that's a pretty good trade. That's a pretty good trade. Yeah. I mean, because you did use the you did use the word renunciation, 
which feels like giving something up. And I feel like deprivation and sacrifice are words that I use a lot. Does it, and part of it to me is like, it doesn't feel any, before I say, tried to avoid packaged food or avoid flying, it felt like giving something up. It doesn't feel like that now. It doesn't feel like I've given something up. It feels like I've relieved myself of a burden or I've um, maybe de defogged something, clarified, like de demystified some thoughts. Yeah, unclouded. I like the word defogged. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And when you talked about the greater happiness. Uh, I mean, in, in your bio, you talk about Buddhists that you, is it, do I read a religiousness there or not a really, um, something ethereal, something other uh, beyond just, um, the facts and figures? Uh, I'm not quite sure what you're asking. Yeah, I guess it, it felt like there was, when you said a lesser happiness for a greater happiness, it felt like that, that connected. I mean, I meditate every day and it kind of resonated with, something there beyond just um it felt like self-awareness you were talking about self-awareness something that comes through reflection there is a buddhist teaching on uh on renunciation actually so yes and i think i mentioned that in the story that that is you know trading a lesser happiness for a greater happiness is an idea that is explored in buddhist teachings so yeah, I'm not a religious person, but I am very interested in uh, teachings that can help us free ourselves from suffering, both individually and collectively. Oh, that reminds me of another big angle that often comes up is individual action versus systemic change. That's how, it, how it's often framed, although um, I'm not sure if you saw on the blackboard behind me, it says systemic change begins with personal change which I think to me has would have sounded crazy before, but now seems pretty obvious, but that's not to say it's true, but was that something I, I don't remember if you covered that so much. It, you did cover it in the, in the piece about a lot of people feel like, and, and you struggled with this. I think of what, if I change my life, if I turn my life upside down and I barely make an effect on the world, what's the point? Did you get a yeah. lot of that? Did you hit that with people who had, that you talked to this about? You know, I think that collective change and individual change can't be separated. You know, um, I'm not, my view is that there isn't one that even begins. They're just always completely inseparable. And our vantage points as individuals are pretty limited, right? Um, there's not that much that we can see. From our vantage point, we think we can, you know, <laughs> um, but I think we have to enter into it with some humility, right? And it's like, we have no idea how what we do will affect the whole, but it can't not affect the whole because we're a part of it, you know? And so just like talking with my friend Liz, like her decision wound up inspiring me. And then I wrote this story that, you know, at least tens of thousands of people read, if not more. and. Um, you, you just have no idea how your decisions, how your quiet loves in the world will take shape and affect the whole, you know? So that's my, that's my feeling on it. We just have to make the decisions that feel true to our hearts, you know? I'll be very curious to hear how, if over time you start hearing more back from people, maybe people need to settle, let it simmer for a while. Maybe, I mean, maybe it won't affect that many people. But maybe it will. Yeah, actually, you know, over time, I've heard, you know, a friend of mine, I also did, I'm not very good at sharing on social media. <laughs> you have to get better on that. But a friend of mine, it's like, hey, I didn't even know you wrote this story. And, um, and she found it on the website of the Adventure Travel Trade Association, which I find very heartening because she said people have been talking about this and dancing around it in the adventure travel industry for many years. And so she was really excited to see it shared through that organization. So it is that I found to be encouraging. So it is, it is um, making its way in the world. I saw it referenced in another article too. So 
I think sometimes these um, ideas that are somewhat challenging and um, yeah, like I said, it, it, it takes a while for people to metabolize them, but um, I, I like to think that, uh, well, I'll just stop there. I'll just stop. <laughs> I feel like it's Friday afternoon. I'm rambling and I'm, <laughs> this is an occupational hazard. It's not an, a straightforward, it's not a topic that most people have talked about and it's, it's all new territory. I'm sure you've come, I've read a lot of articles on flying, not flying, and none of them treat it with the, I don't know what the word is, reverence, reflection, or introspection that yours had. I mean, did you, I feel like you've, I hope, opened up new territory of thoughtful consideration as opposed to knee jerk or, um, I mean, it's, it's countercultural. It's definitely, our culture has just, flying i mean it's only century old uh, about and yet it's just completely thoroughly ingrained and entitled yeah it's amazing how quickly we get used to things right and yeah. feel like it's our right um absolutely yeah and so and the thought of not flying is like really i think for a lot of people it the words not flying go into the brain in the part of the family or job part of the brain. And, the, and it feels like you've said, never see your mom again and get fired from your job and then lose your apartment. Right. It can seem unthinkable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. But, um, but it's also, um, it also can be fun to think about, you know what I mean? Because I think so often we go through our lives doing our things and checking the boxes off our to-do list or, you know, depending on how you operate in your life. And it can be fun to have an invitation to, to be like, okay, like I am invited to the table to problem solve. Like, how could this be possible? You know, it's cool to be invited into assuming a really creative mindset, you know, like what would it actually mean to do this? Um, it's, uh, it's exciting. It can be exciting. I hope so. And I think that that perspective of yours is why you made that article and I didn't because to me in my experience, it's it's fun to think about, at least for me, it was fun to think about until I actually thought about doing it myself and then I start sweating. Right. Not, not literally, but you know, not sleeping. So it's fun until I take it seriously. And then that's why it's hard for me to talk about because, well, if I share, I think I, I feel like I hit other people's um, a version that I had to thinking about it until I just couldn't stop myself. Yeah. But then when you did do something about it, it was empowering, right? Yeah. After once I, you know, that quote, um, once you've committed, I don't know the quote, it's too long, but it's like, once you've committed, then suddenly things start going in your favor and things you never could imagine work out for you and all sorts of resources come your way. That definitely happened before I committed. It was all doubt. And then after I committed, then it started falling into place on a personal level, but then it took a long time for it to hit to find any sort of community. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, you're an early adopter, but you know what? You haven't had to deal with TSA in a really long time, yeah. which in and of itself is worth it, right? I mean, I, I admire the TSA people, but the whole experience is just like, I think all of us would be happy to leave that behind. Yeah, a friend came to visit who... Her English wasn't very good, so I met to, went to meet her at JFK, and oh, oh my God, airports! Are, it was my first time in an airport in a long time, like years and years. And it's just, just a. I was really. It wasn't oppressive, but it was really an unpleasant place. It is. It's like chaos. Yeah. And getting there, ugh, because they have to be far away, and yet, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for interviewing me, Josh. It's been great to talk with you. I hope something made sense on my part anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, as I said, your article, it said things that I felt but hadn't thought to say or hadn't thought to even, you know, register consciously. And it gave me a feeling of understanding and um, comfort. So I do hope that it opens up. I hadn't thought about, you know, until I just said it a, a minute or two ago of, I hope it opens up. Uh, a dialogue and a, a way for people to think about something that is currently unthinkable and not just to, it's not just a matter of um, adding up carbon credits. And it's also, there's this internal intrinsic uh, internal conflict 
and in conflict with our culture that I appreciate and, and thank you for bringing to our attention or, or putting out in a thoughtful way as you did. Yeah, well, thank you so much for reading it and for, um, for hosting me on your podcast. Well, I look forward to talking again soon. Okay, sounds good. Have a good day, Josh. Bye. Bye. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.